Hello and welcome to the New Horizons Talks, a podcast series by CSL Bering exploring key issues surrounding cell and gene therapies and their promise to transform the lives of people around the world living with serious rare disease. My name is Vivian Parry. I'm a science writer and broadcaster and your host for this series of conversations. We've already reached our third episode, and we're going to talk about what patient centricity should mean when it comes to these advanced therapies, exploring how care must be planned and delivered to be responsive to individual patient preferences, needs, and values. It's the improvement in better health outcome and quality of life for patients, often with no other treatments available to them, that's driving this extraordinary wave of medical innovation. What exactly does patient focus mean when you're talking about these advanced therapies? I'm keen to know what patients should know before embarking on this type of treatment and what the role of patient advocacy groups in empowering patients to make these decisions should be. Well, there's nobody more expert than a patient in terms of how disease impact their lives, and there's nobody better qualified to talk about these issues than Dehan Wong Riga, Chair of the Rare Disease International Council. So all the way from Montreal, welcome to Han. Well, thank you very much, Vivian. I'm not sure I'm the most qualified, but I love the introduction and the uh, the setup. So I will try my very best to actually live up to that billing, I guess is the right word. But it is, in fact, as you say, the most important and exciting area for uh, drug therapies that we've got going on. So it is, as you have said, something that we're all paying attention to and really need to pay a whole lot more attention to. So why do these advanced therapies need to have anything different in terms of patient focus or patient centricity? We're delighted with the fact that researchers and certainly developers are all thinking patient centricity because it is, in fact, the driver for making sure that the therapies we are developing are going to be useful, relevant to the patients. But even more so, as you say, in these cell and gene therapies, which have lots of unique properties that the older chemical drugs, even biologics, don't have, right? So certainly, first of all, they are going to be mostly highly targeted. Even within one particular rare diseases, you know, about 60, 70% of them are really, well, even more than that, quite frankly, don't have any kind of treatment right now. So in fact, only about 5% of the 7,000 rare diseases actually have a treatment. So this is the new horizon. This is the real hope. But beyond that, these are very targeted therapies and they're targeted to very specific kinds of genomic makeups. And that's the real challenge is that they are not exactly totally personalized medicines, but they do have to be very specific to those groups of individuals. And so from that perspective, the individuals who are going to be most impacted need to be involved in terms of the early stages in terms of research and development all the way through to, you know, information about how well they're working, do they work, and and what happens as we're looking at the long-term effects of it. So I can see an immediate problem there in terms of patient literacy, because there isn't one answer you can give to everybody. There is a different answer for different treatments. Yes. I mean, this is a big challenge for therapies in general. That is, how much do patients really know? How much do they need to know in order to make a good informed decision? 
for everything from do I want to enter into a research program? Do I want to enter into a clinical trial? Do I actually want to take a chance, especially if there are some alternative therapies that are open to me? Do I want to try this whole new avenue of therapies that, I mean, honestly, right, we've been talking about it for a while, are still very, very much in their infancy. So this is important. The other thing, as you say rightly, is that it's very different across different disease groups. I mean, we talk about gene therapies as if it were a gene therapy. It isn't. There are a huge range of gene therapies. There are a huge range in terms of the mechanisms by which they work. You know, it's like the COVID vaccines, right? There are many different platforms that they're based on. There's also a whole range in terms of the kinds of research and how long that research has taken place. So that's a difference. There's also, from a patient perspective, there's a real difference in terms of um, how much at risk the patient is, not just in terms of the therapy, but what are the alternatives? If you've already got a, a good therapy that works reasonably well and has been very much demonstrated in terms of the benefit risk, do you want to take a chance on something that could have a one-time lifetime benefit, but you know has a lot of unknowns, as opposed to a disease for which there isn't anything else or nothing very effective? And, you know, you really are desperate to get access to it, even if it's got more risk. There's a difference between, for instance, in the blood, rare blood diseases, hemophilia, which has a lot of treatments, but now we've got really promising gene therapies versus sickle cell disease, which has very little in terms of real treatments. But we've got the promise of a gene therapy that can actually then jump all those kinds of challenges that we currently have. But, you know, the alternatives are very few and far between. And there are other particular problems, which are that it's not just that you're thinking about what the treatment is going to do, but if it doesn't work, that may mean that you don't get considered for funding for another round of what might be a better gene therapy as new ones come down the line. But more than that, there may be a biological reason why you can't take then the next generation of gene therapy. So there are some very unique considerations for patients to consider before they jump into this. You've asked, you know, and sort of raised, I think, some really important points that probably many patients aren't even aware of. And certainly not even many clinicians are going to discuss with those patients. So it really is important, as we say, that we think about gene therapy literacy, you know, not just sort of a health literacy or, you know, because it really does vary. Again, in some cases, if the therapies don't last as long as they do or don't continue to perform, because what we're doing is in hemophilia, we're giving you a, a gene that is supposed to replace the one that's not working, right? But will it work forever? I mean, that's a big question. But there's oftentimes in a, uh, a fallback, right? A different strategy that you can use as opposed to another therapy where there isn't a fallback strategy. So what happens if it fails? You know, do I get to even have another option? And as you say, what about the timing? It's a little bit like we talked about with COVID, right? Do I wait for take this vaccine? Do I wait till you improve the vaccine? Do I wait till other variants, are, you know, in terms of, you know, when I should come in? It's a huge decision. And they're oftentimes very individualized decision. So again, the need to not only understand the benefits and risks, but also to have each and every patient be able to understand their own benefits and risks. And yes, there is the issue with regard to, I mean, to put it bluntly, some payers are going to be paying what will look like very high upfront costs for a gene therapy with the promise, right, that it's going to last, not forever, for many, many years. But if it fails and I have to go back to the other therapy, is this going to be an issue? Because, you know, I paid once. You want me to pay again? I mean, of course you do. You have to. But it does make it very difficult in terms of the um, 
the cost benefits equations for payers, and one can't ignore that. The other big challenge, of course, is as you say, as these are being developed, we also have a big problem. We're running out of patients. Some of these therapies that are coming in, there are multiple companies developing them. They're all going after the same patients. This is a huge problem because you know, if I go into this clinical trial, I'm not going to be eligible for another clinical trial. Or even if I go into a clinical trial, I may not be eligible when that you know better therapy comes out. So huge, huge question. But if nobody goes into the clinical trials, then we're not going to have any therapies. So again, the patient communities are really, really, I find stepping up to it. Hemophilia, Duchenne, some of the lysosomal storage diseases, they're all stepping up to say, how can we work together? How can we do a better job in understanding and helping inform our patient community internationally? So that's a huge, huge responsibility for the patient community. And uh, not every community obviously has the same level of sophistication, advice, et cetera. So, but we need to, right? So yeah, those are hugely important kinds of decisions in terms of these very, very promising therapies, but also have a whole lot of unknowns. And one of the other considerations for patients is that very often, particularly at the beginning, these therapies are going to be available in bigger hospitals, which perhaps aren't even in your own country. And yet, the other bit of it is that you might be able to travel, and lots of people, of course, would travel for something like this, but then it's absolutely critical that there's follow-up. And you don't want to be constantly traveling to another country in order to get your follow-up. So how do you check out that the facilities are there for you to be followed up locally? Our goal is to bring the therapy to the patient, not make the patient go to the therapy, right? And I think that's huge. But again, it depends on the type of gene therapy. Some of the gene therapies are very complex. They do indeed have a high level of risk, and they will require immediate follow-up and ongoing follow-up in the initial stages, right? They could cause, for instance, um, reactions that you really will have to monitor. Um, So that is a consideration. Others you know, are not necessarily that um, concerning in terms of uh, reactions because of, the, again, the type of therapy, et cetera. So it would depend a bit on the therapy. Some of them really will require, you know, some real clinical um, facilities around them. Others, if somebody said to me, well, you know, the physician can do it. If he knows how to do a shot in the arm, he can do this gene therapy. You know, it ain't a whole lot of preparation. It takes two hours of training and he's off to <laughs> yeah, go. Yeah, we're, so we're all much better at doing shots in the arms these days. Exactly. <laughs> it's all going like, Okay, well, that's interesting. And again, you know, there's the power of having these, um, what we're talking about. You know, Europeans are set up well in terms of reference networks, right? They're linked together. And in theory, you know, patients should be able to get access to a center of reference with virtual connections to a really maybe the best specialist at the same time. So a lot can be done virtually. Again, that bless COVID, you know, we've learned a whole lot how to work in a virtual treatment environment, right? So there's a lot more that can be done. And I think that's helpful. And especially if we start to think about some of the patients that are in lower middle income countries or outside of where there might be any centers of expertise. And in many cases, we're recruiting them to be part of our clinical trials. How do we get therapies to them? So I think it's thinking creatively and thinking globally and really thinking about these models that allow centralized expertise to be able to be connected to other sites that may be supported by, and even to more remote sites where you've got the family physician you know, who's able to be trained to monitor. And of course, the patient. The patient can be highly trained to actually be their own best monitor. And All that's a really there. interesting point you raised, uh, Dahan, because the one thing that we know we need are registries. So all the people who've had a particular treatment 
And the companies need that because without that information, they're never going to get their drug reimbursed properly because nobody will know what the true effects are. So I think that in some ways this marks a watershed moment because patients have to be central because they have to be the ones that absolutely insist that their every last cough and spit is monitored and is part of that registry information. Yeah, absolutely. But again, the patients can be much more you know, front and center in doing that, right? We think about especially digital tools. You know, in hemophilia, I remember many, many years ago, we gave the guys, you know, diaries, digital diaries. You have to at least, you know, Put into the diary, you know, when you took your um, your infusion and uh, what were the side effects, right? And we've made it easier and easier to do that, you know. And we look at diabetes. Even better are many of these digital monitors that are just passive. You wear them; they collect that information for you. You plug them in at night. The more we can get to being able to use the technology, especially digital technology, to empower patients to collect that information, but also to get feedback get immediate feedback in terms of what is working, what's not working, right? And again, diabetes is a great example of a daughter-in-law with type 1 diabetes. I mean, she's got her monitor. It does everything for her now, you know? It tells her where her glucose levels are. It gives her immediately, you know, the insulin when she's a bit low. It gives her, you know, kind of warnings when she's out of scope. It's that kind of stuff that we need to think about because the technology is there. We just need to be able to harness it. But the most important thing is empowering that patient and being able to make sure that that patient is involved. You know, we have the question raised to us, well, what happens to these patients if they get so-called cure and then they decide never to show up again, right? They go around saying, I'm cured. I don't need to do this. And my factor levels are good. I'm not having any more pain. You know, I seem to, you know, I'm not getting any more cancers coming back. I'm good. But if we actually provide them with the kind of monitors that we're talking about, one, it will remind them, you know, in terms of what they need to look at. Two, it can actually provide some of that information passively. And third, it really will empower them as they see changes and differences that, okay, this is kind of what's happening to me. So I think it's really being able to really engage that patient when making it so it's, you know, that they can put it into their real life. You know, I didn't really you know, give you this treatment so that I'm going to burden you with, you know, becoming a, you know, walking uh, patient every minute, you know, needing to kind of be super conscious of what your health condition is. One of the darker sides of these advanced therapies is the way that stem cell clinics have sprung up, offering, you know, cures for this and that. And there is that side to advanced therapies that there are some rogue clinics And that makes patient literacy really, really important so that they're not seduced by some of the promises made by clinics that actually can't give them the benefits that they claim. Yeah. And that's so important. I mean, you raised, I think, a, you know, a concern that we all have, right, in terms of people, in some cases, are just desperate. Now, the good news is that for patient conditions, rare conditions in which there are good patient organizations and where there are registries and where patients already belong, that actually can be, you know, really, you can short circuit a lot of that because they know to go to their patient organizations, et cetera. The challenges we have is where there are not necessarily any patient organizations or they're not well-established because there aren't any great therapies. I mean, the therapies help to reinforce the patient communities, right? So this is obviously a big, you know, concern is that you do get these rogue clinics. And because also, you know, people are desperate. 
as I say, you know, only 5% of rare diseases actually have a treatment. And certainly the ultra rares are even more challenging and even more difficult. But it behooves us all to really be involved in increasing the level of not only health literacy, but the ability to actually look out for these kinds of scams. But I mean, the sad part is, it isn't just that, okay, I can scam you out of a few, you know, thousand dollars. I'm going to be scamming you out of your life. And I think that's the scary, scary part about it. So yeah, you know, that's a huge part. And uh, and that's where the legitimate education, awareness, et cetera. And I will say, honestly, we're not doing a great job of it. I mean, so this kind of podcast is great. Get the real information out, get people to hear it. You know, it's not just for the communities that have gene therapies today, right? Use this as a learning tool and get people to really understand kind of what are the challenges, what are the issues, but also what is not there. And I think that's, that's important. And this also means that we need to be somewhat more honest. You know, yes, there's a huge hope. Yes, there's a lot of hype around it, but let's not, you know, kind of put so much hope and hype into it that uh, people will, number one, sort of short circuit the information. You know, it takes 10, 15 years to develop a gene therapy. I'm looking at some some of our first patients that are out there, you know, have been treated 10 years ago. And I'm going to like, why is it taking so long to get it to everybody else? I said, there's a lot of research and a lot of monitoring that has to be done in order to make sure it's going to be safely available. So we get it, right? But people didn't get in a hurry and they want to look for shortcuts. So yeah, it's a huge challenge. But I think it's, you know, that's why something like this is so very important that, you know, we can get it out. There are legitimate channels of information and legitimate places that they can go to get questions answered. Let me move on to something else, which I think is very important in talking about patient focus, and that's patient involvement in HTA decision-making. How can they be empowered to be part of the decision-making process for these new therapies? First of all, they're going to be empowered to tell HTA, you got to get some better tools and methodologies for assessing these therapies because what you're using today does not work. And I, we say that bluntly because even they know it. The methodologies that are designed to look at value propositions and comparative value you know, come up far short when we're starting to talk about these gene therapies, number one, that are going to be fairly, very expensive. Number two, are going to be giving you benefits over many, many years, as opposed to being able to compare what's the benefit of this one versus the other. Some of it, I won't know for a long time, right? So I think the kind of tools that HTA are using and were designed to do are not well suited to gene therapies. And, you know, if you look at the strict application of it in the few cases in which they've been applied, if you follow it to exactly the model, what you end up with, you know, and we've seen the recommendation even in Canada, well, we, we can approve this and we recommend it, but you have to reduce the price by 95%. It's like, huh? You know, how does that work? Because, yeah, if I use a traditional cost effectiveness methods, which looks at the benefits of it, you know, comparatively, it looks at the certainty of getting those benefits, I'm going to discount the kind of value for it. It doesn't work. And so we need to, it's the same as the regulators have done a really good job in being able to come up with better tools to really assess what are the benefit risks for it, not using traditional clinical trial designs, not using traditional balances of risk benefits, but being much more adaptable to the therapy that's coming in. We've got to do that with HDA. So my answer to the patient community, understand what HDA does, understand what HDA can't do, and let's get together to really say we've got to do something different And we are seeing that response. I'm not saying it's just the patients doing it. They themselves recognize it. I am really excited by some of the methodologies that are evolving through programs, especially in the European community, where they're coming together. And you look at programs like Impact HTA, which are really thinking about 
how can we actually accommodate our methodologies to provide useful information? Uh, but the other big focus really is going to be on the reimbursers. How do we get them to actually evolve different ways of funding these therapies? And the real answer is, I think we're not talking about funding therapies. We're not talking about paying for treatments. We're talking about investment, you know, investment in a long-term outcome for the patients is an investment. And some of those funding models think about it as an investment, right? It's a pay-for-performance model. It's a pay-as-you-go model so that we can pay over time based on the continued benefit to, to the patients, those kinds of things, and to recognize that, you know, the long-term gains. And to also recognize this as an investment because, like any new technology, it's going to cost a bit more up front. But as we do more, as we have companies that are able to develop more therapies and they're using some of the same technologies, even using some of the same vector platforms, they're going to become much cheaper. So, you know, recognize it's an investment up front, but we need to make that investment. And it's critical, really, that patient voices are represented at those decision-making tables because sometimes companies and patients have different views on what's a successful treatment. You know, success for patients may be easing of a particular symptom that is their most troublesome, whilst for a company, it may be a change in a number related to some physiological variable. And actually, unless patients are at that table, they can't make the representation that their parameters should be considered. Yeah, and you're really important, you know, what is a patient relevant outcome, right? It's not just a patient reported outcome, what's relevant to the patient, even in the development of the treatment. You know, are you developing a treatment that is going to treat something that patients care about? I mean, gene therapies, we usually think, okay, it's going to cure the disease, but, you know, quite frankly, it may not be quite that simple, right? So that's number one, even at the very beginning. I think there is a huge challenge, though, even for the regulators. And you look at FDA, you look at EMA, the ability to actually use the patient-reported information, the patient-relevant information into the actual decision-making process is fairly problematic for them still. You know, they've got pretty good stats in terms of how they look at the other sources of benefit risk. We've even taken things like quality of life and we've actually quantified it into quality of life skills. We end up with these measures and that's easier for the regulators and certainly for the HTA assessors to use those because they can kind of look at numbers, they can kind of compare it, et cetera. It's more difficult when we are really talking about patient-relevant outcomes. And we're talking about the patient's you know, uh, voice in terms of what it is that means to me. How do we deal with that? I heard you know, a wonderful statement around it. It means that the regulators have to be more agile. They have to be able to figure out how they're going to wrap their decision-making around these other types of information that are going to be much more qualitative but are still important without reducing the level of science that they're using. It is really challenging. I don't think we're there yet. I don't think we've really figured out how to do that yet. And, uh, you know, we are seeing a lot of evolution. I think on the assessor side, it's even worse because they have not been able to figure out how do we take what's important to a patient and figure out how do we put it into a recommendation. And certainly from the payer's point of view, do I really care in terms of what the patients are telling me in their own words? Is that patient, you know, Voice is, I hear you, it's important, but I don't quite know what to do with your information. You know, how do I factor that into, is this a valuable treatment for you? You say it's going to make you feel better. You say it's going to make you, you know, be able to work more. You say it gives you better ability to breathe. And I've heard even clinicians say, what do I do with that? 
You know, it's hard. We have not evolved, you know, enough methodologies to say, how do we collectively appraise that and make it so that it's going to be meaningful? And so patients get frustrated. We've spent a lot of time in the middle of doing a whole bunch of HTA submissions. We collect information. We do patient voices. We do videos around patients and we submit it. And we have no idea what the HTA body is going to do with it or what the payer is going to do with it. But quite frankly, if you ask me, I don't really know what you should do with it. You know, so I want you to hear it. But how do you make a good decision on it? I don't know. We need to kind of work harder in terms of figuring out what are ways that we can systematically include that information without it just being, okay, that's good anecdotal information, but, you know, so what? So what I'm hearing from you, Dehan, loud and clear, is that there's a key role for patients in the development of these new medicines. Uh, There's a key role in being involved in HTA. There's a key role in follow-up. And there's also this very important advocacy role in helping patients who are considering whether or not to have these advanced therapies. Actually, your last comment is probably the most important, right? At the end of the day, it's an individual patient that's going to have to make a decision. I mean, obviously, with a whole bunch of other advice, right, as to whether or not this works best for them. And there's probably never going to be a clear yes or no, right? Again, you know, do I or do I not get a vaccine? I need to take into consideration a lot of factors. I need to write kind of advice around me. And I need to be clear in terms of what my own priorities and goals are. So it's a little bit of sorting that out as well. You know, how important is it for me to be worry-free that I can go for the next 20 years without worrying about, you know, where do I get my next treatment, right? I think those are the kind of things that we do have to kind of consider. And how do we help, as you say, that patient being able to make that right decision. It's something we all need to do. You know, we talk about things like decision-making tools and more than ever, we need those kinds of tools around, you know, helping clinicians even to provide the right advice to their patients because that's where they'll go. But the question is, have we properly empowered the clinicians to be able to feel they can help the patients make good decisions? I'm not sure we have. And you need that cool and balanced advice from somebody who's been there because these are very seductive treatments. And that's not to dismiss them, but they are seductive because they promise so much, yet we have to understand that they are in their infancy and we are not there yet. Yeah. And I mean, seductive is a great word. And in some respects, you know, they're life-changing, they're life-saving therapies. But as I said, you have to balance it out with what else is available sometimes, right? And in some cases, there's nothing else available. So, okay, I can take that leap, right? Even though it looks high risk. On the other hand, it may be that maybe I don't want to go there yet because I've got other things that are working for me. Maybe I need to have, you know, the next generation of those therapies before I take the leap. So again, you know, it goes back to, as you say, in a personal decision, the other seductive part that goes back to some of the things you said, the hype and people kind of getting scammed sometimes by it. And we haven't seen a lot of it yet, but there's enough that make you worried. And also the other part, though, is we don't want to overpromise. How many times have we been close? You know, some of these communities that have been sitting on the edge, you know, every single minute thinking, okay, that gene therapy is going to come through now. And we are in clinical trials and we're going to phase two clinical trials and we've got good data. And now we're going to look at phase three and then it goes, poof, it didn't get through. I think that's really, really tough for the patient community. It takes a lot of, you know, engagement with that patient community, right, to have them clearly understand that nobody's stopping these trials, you know, uh, because they don't feel like they're going to be able to make a big profit out of it. They're really all, we're all working together in the best interest of the patients. And that takes a lot of partnership from way up front. 
Han, it's been such a joy talking to you. And I do think actually this is a new moment for patients. I think there is a new moment for them to really claim that genuine center ground. So thank you very much for talking to me today. So thank you so much for being such an intelligent interviewer. I don't usually get that. (laughs) (laughs) She's such a flatterer. So (laughs) thanks so much to Han for joining us. You've been brilliant. Now, if you've enjoyed this conversation, why not share this whole series of New Horizons talks with your friends or colleagues? You can do it through your favorite podcast download platform or just click on the link. In our next episode, we're going to be looking at the ethical challenges thrown up by advanced therapies. Bye for now. 